All right, so we're in the fifth week of this uh, study of the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, as I've mentioned uh, every week, that this is a book that uh, took place during the kind of the time of the judges. It was a time of anarchy in the life of Israel, and the people in the midst of the anarchy cried out for a king. And God gave the people of Israel a king, but as Israel soon found out, leadership um, is both absolutely necessary, and we're kind of celebrating that today, the, the necessity of leadership, but leadership also is potentially incredibly destructive. And 1 Samuel serves as kind of a reminder of that, and a reminder of the responsibilities of leadership, the characteristics of leadership, what, what good leadership looks like, but also the destructiveness of leadership and how leadership can have such a destructive impact on the lives of others. And today we're looking at the most famous, most dramatic, most often repeated, most often told, most often acted out stories of David. And it's the story that deals with the most fundamental of all questions, and that is how do you deal with fear? How do you face life's most challenging circumstances with courage? And how do you demonstrate courage in your life? And here's the context of the story. The Philistines and the Israelites are mortal enemies. Think, uh, think Ohio State, Michigan. Think uh, Duke, North Carolina. Think the Bears and the Packers. Yeah, I started to say when the Bears were good, but now I can actually say back when the Packers were good too. So it's a new rivalry. I'm sorry, David, but it's a new rivalry again because they both stink. Okay, so anyway, think about that. Think about the Roadrunner and, uh, and Wiley Coyote or w whatever. Like think about like these kind of bitter mortal enemies, except this is like life and death stuff. This is, this is which culture survives and which culture is destroyed kind of stuff. And the Philistines and the Israelites are lined up for like another huge battle. This is the context for this story. And then one man steps forward from the Philistines. And his name is Goliath. And this is what he says. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out from the Philistine camp. And he was over nine feet tall. And he had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a, card of, a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. And his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its, an, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. And his shield bearer went ahead of him. And Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel. They're all in close proximity at this point. He shouts to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down and meet me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and you will serve us. And then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let me fight and let us fight each other. On hearing this, the Philistine's words, Saul, King Saul, and all of the Israelites were dismayed and scared to death, terrified. Now, a bunch of things I want to unpack here. First of all, 
In, in verse 4, Goliath is referred to as a champion. And that's actually an official kind of title. That's actually an official kind of term that was used to describe certain individuals within, within an army that were persons that were often chosen on behalf of the army to fight some champion from the other army and let that battle determine who would be subject to who. And so two armies would send out a champion. It was actually a, a category, a champion, who would fight to the death. And the army of the losing champion would become the subject's of the army of the winning champion. And when you think about it, not a bad idea. Only one person, like all these people don't have to die, only one person has to die, very efficient. And the victory or the defeat of the champion is transferred to the entire army and actually to the entire nation. Now we're told in verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all of the Israelites are dismayed and terrified. And it's easy to see why. This guy is enormous. The text here translates his height as nine feet tall. Some other biblical scholars say that actually the height that's given and when you, you know, put together all the calculators, there was probably closer to eight feet tall. Doesn't matter. Either way, an enormous, enormous guy. And Goliath is wearing all of the new state-of-the-art military hardware. Like he has a bronze helmet on his head. He's wearing a coat of scale armor that weighs 5,000 shekels. That's 150, 150 pounds of armor that he's wearing. He's wearing bronze protective gear on his legs. He has a bronze javelin. In addition to all that, he has a spear that has an iron point on it. The point on the spear weighs 500 shekels, 600 shekels, which is like 20 pounds. So this is, this is state-of-the-art, state-of-the-art weaponry. And this is the kind of person that would strike fear in the heart of anyone. And that's exactly what it does to the Israelite army. It's what it does to the leader of the army, King Saul. And so for 40 days, Goliath calls for a champion to come out. So no battle's taking place. Like everyone's lined up. Like the front lines are established. Everyone's there. But for 40 days... Goliath comes out and he kind of gives this, this call for someone to come and to fight him. And for 40 days, there is complete and total silence on the part of the Israelites. They are completely ghosting Goliath. Like they are completely ignoring him. They're trying to pretend like the giant is not there. Which is actually, when you think about it, Sometimes the same way that we deal with our own giants, when we deal with our own fears in our own lives, that we think that if we just kind of ghost them long enough, if we pretend for long enough that they're not there, if we ignore them for long enough, that somehow they will just go away. But just like Goliath, they just keep coming back day after day after day after day. Now, while all this is going on, Goliath coming out, giving his taunts, calling for a champion to come. While all this is going on, David is going back and forth between tending sheep in Bethlehem and the front lines of the non-battle that is taking place. And actually, those two places are not that far apart. The battlefield was near Jerusalem, 
Two, two of the members actually on our trip that just got back from Israel went to the battlefield where all of this took place. It's near Jerusalem, which is just a few hours walk from Bethlehem. So it would have been easy for David to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, which is what he did. And the reason David's going back and forth is because David's three oldest brothers have enlisted in Saul's army and are on the front lines. And David has been relegated by his dad. You know, his dad relegated him to taking care of the sheep in the field. And now he's been relegated by his dad to deliver food from Bethlehem to his brothers a few hours away on the front lines and then to check up and how things are going and how's, how's his eldest brothers doing, all of that. Like that's the role that David has. And it's one of these trips, back and forth, back and forth. It's one of these trips to deliver food to his brothers on the front lines. He's like Grubhub in the, you know, way before, <laughs> back in the day, that David hears Goliath calling out for a champion to do battle with. And this is how David responds, verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? This little David, like David's like four feet tall, okay, right? So who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him all the stuff that had been going on and how the king was going to give, you know, a reward to the, anyone who would stand up to Goliath. And this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Now, when his brothers hear what David is saying, they're incensed. They are beside themselves. Because after all, this is their little brother. And like, what can a little brother accomplish? And the thought of him coming in from tending sheep and trash talking about Goliath is like more than they can take. So they tell their little brother, go back home where he belongs. Like go back to your place. Like you know your place. You know what your place is. Go back to where you belong. Go back to your place. But David ignores them. Now, this is not the main point. I just want to take a pause. This is not the main point of the story, but I think it's just really important to point out is that there is always going to be somebody in your life who is going to be quick to tell you where you belong and what you can and cannot do for whatever the reason is, because of your education, because of your gender, because of your background, because of your ethnicity, because of your qualifications, because of whatever, there is always going to be somebody who is quick to tell you where you belong and what you can and cannot do, especially when you're trying to do something great for God. And that's the time to experience what I would call a case of holy deafness. Like that's what David has in this moment when his brothers say, you need to go back home. You know where your place is. Your place is back in the fields taking care of the sheep. And David experienced this case of holy deafness. Sometimes we just need to Sometimes we need to pay attention and listen to what people are saying, but sometimes we need to do what David does and just ignore the naysayers because they've got nothing to say to us in those moments. Can I get an amen for that? 
is that there are times when there are people that God uses to speak into our lives and we need to hear what they say. And there are times when there are just the doubters, there are the naysayers, and they are speaking into our lives about what we should and should not do, what we can and cannot do. And in those times, we need to just put them behind us. We need to experience a case of holy deafness. Okay, back to the story. Now, not only do David's brothers hear him trash-talking Goliath, but a bunch of other people hear him trash-talking Goliath as well. And so they tell King Saul what David is saying, and King Saul brings David in to see who this is. Now, at this point, I don't think David, Saul has ever seen David. So he's probably expecting this big strapping guy to come in, and this little shepherd boy walks in. But David like is not intimidated by the moment, which is what I love about this story, is that he is in the presence of the king. Like sometimes, you know, sometimes you say something and somebody hears you say something and calls you on it and then you have to defend it. And you're like, I wish I had never said that, you know? But David's like trash talking Goliath and someone hears him and he gets brought into the king and you're thinking, oh, this is the time David's going, what was I doing, you know? But David's like, no, 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 I'm seizing this moment. And he is not dismayed in this moment. And this is what David says. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. He's been fighting. Um, uh, he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant, I love this. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I'm the one that struck it. I'm the one that rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. It's all about bears and lions. I seized them by their hair and I struck them and I killed them. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, the, law, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, okay, go. And the Lord be with you. You know, it's like, you know how sometimes people like go, you know, bless you, you know, and you know, oh, it's such a blessing. You know, is that, you know, it's just like, sometimes it's like, that's the thing you say, oh, bless their souls, you know, because it's like, they don't have a chance, you know? And so like, there's no way. And you kind of get the sense almost that Saul is just like, okay, the Lord be with you. You know, like he's not, I don't know that he believes it even in that moment. And there's something really incredibly interesting that's happening in this exchange. Saul tries to write David off because, think about this, why? Because he's been tending sheep his whole life. And he views that, Saul views that as a negative. But David is saying that it's the very fact that he's been tending sheep that has prepared him for this very moment. In other words, he's saying he's best equipped to fight Goliath 
not in spite of the fact that he's been a shepherd, but because of the fact that he's been a shepherd. It's being a shepherd that taught him how to kill lions and kill bears with a sling. And it's those very same skills that he needs in order to bring down Goliath. He's not intimidated by Goliath because he's taken on bears one-on-one, he's taken on lions one-on-one, and he's been victorious. So David's not intimidated by the bears. He's not intimidated by the lions. He's not intimidated by the Packers. He's not intimidated by the Vikings. So why would he be intimidated by an oversized NBA center, right? That's really what he's saying. And that's an incredibly, incredibly important principle. Because sometimes the very things that we look at as weaknesses... The very things that we wish we didn't have to go through, we wish we hadn't had to deal with, we wish we hadn't had to be in that situation, those very things are the very things that God uses to accomplish his mission in the world. He doesn't accomplish his mission in spite of whatever that thing is that you're going through. He accomplishes his mission because of that very thing that you're going through. It's a powerful reminder that whatever it is that you're going through, God can use it. That your time in the field will not be wasted. You know, some of us maybe right now are in one of those seasons, right? Where it's like our time in the field. It's like, it's like, David out with, you know, shepherding. It's just like everyone else in the world looked at that and, and Saul looked at that and said, this was all wasted time. Here's Goliath. He's been a fighting man since his youth, which has prepared him for this moment. David, you've been out in the fields all this time. That's been wasted time. And that has not prepared you for this moment. And David is saying, no, no, no. That time in the field, that time that looks like it's wasted time to you, that's actually been time that God has been using to prepare me for this very moment that I am ready to enter into. And so often we find ourselves out in the field and we go, why am I here? Why am I going through this? Why is this happening? This seems like a wasted moment. It's time in the field. It's not getting me to the next thing, the next big thing. And God is saying, I will not waste your time in the field. I will not waste your time in the field. I will use it to prepare you for what's next. You don't even know what's next. David didn't know that, David had no idea he was gonna fight Goliath. Like he had no, he's just running back and forth doing his Grubhub thing. He's just going back and forth delivering food when all of this is like becomes a moment. And when it becomes a moment, all of a sudden David has the realization to look back on his life and go, wait a minute. 
God has been preparing me for this moment, a moment I didn't even know I needed to be prepared for. He's been preparing me for this moment for my entire life. That's the way God works. Is that not an amazing God? An amazing, amazing God. That's why when Saul, and I never put this together before. You know, the whole thing, there's so many different interpretations of when Saul tries to put his armor on to David and, and you know, some have said it was just like Saul's trying to put his glory onto David and David says, no, no, no. And he's trying to put, you know, whatever. It's like I never connected this, his preparation in the field with this moment. When Saul tries to put his armor on David, David rejects it. And instead, what does David do? He takes the weapons that he's familiar with. The weapons he's been using in the field. The weapons he's been using to take out the bears and to take out the lions. He takes the sling and he takes the stones and he uses those as he approaches Goliath. Now, in many ways, the story of David and Goliath represent two alternate approaches to overcoming your fears and living a life of courage. David and Goliath are both champions, but they are two very different kinds of champions. You see Goliath's approach to dealing with fear in verse 41 and following. It says, Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer and closer to David. He looked David over <laughs> and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So Goliath deals with his fears by building up his own self-esteem, basically. I'm big, you're small. Uh, I've got the most advanced weaponry. Uh, you've got a sling and stones. You've got nothing. Goliath deals with his fears by visualizing success. He, he visualizes success, right? He says, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Goliath visualizes success. He cannot even imagine defeat. And in a very real sense, that's the way the world generally deals with trying to overcome fear. Like the world says, you deal with your fears by first by like building up your self-esteem. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. This can happen. I can make this happen. I can do this. And then you visualize success. Like how many seminars have you been to? That's just like, you visualize success. You imagine that you have dealt with the situation in a successful way. You visualize it all playing out. You visualize it all going a certain way. You visualize success. You don't even consider the possibility of failure. Failure is something you don't even allow to enter into your mind. If you allow failure to even enter into your mind, then it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. You'll fail because you allow failure to enter into your mind. So you don't even allow failure to enter into your mind. Now, lots of problems with that approach to dealing with your fears. One is it's entirely dependent upon you and your performance. 
But secondly, it's just out of touch with reality. Like it ignores real dangers because the things that you say could never happen can absolutely happen. It can cause you to become overconfident. And that was true with Goliath. One of the reasons Goliath lost is because he was so convinced of his inevitable success that he let his guard down. He was positive to the point of being out of touch with reality of the dangers that were present. This is the thing that we often overlook when we look at this story, is that the weapons that David, David held in his hands were legit weapons. Like sometimes we go, oh, he just he has slang, he has stones. They, you know, we treat them like they weren't legit. They were legit weapons. Not only had David used them to kill lions and to kill bears, later on the Romans used slings in battle alongside the archers. In fact, some suggest that the slings were actually more deadly than the archers. The sling was this little patch of leather that you put a stone two to three inches in diameter in, and there were two strings. And when you swung it around and you released one of the strings at just the perfect time, you could propel the stone like 60 to 70 miles an hour for a long distance. It was the perfect weapon for fighting from a distance, which was perfect for David because he had no intention of going hand-to-hand -hand in combat with a guy over eight feet tall. Like David trusted God, but he wasn't stupid, okay? Like he knew what the best approach was. Now Goliath saw the weapon in David's hands, but was so confident. He had so visualized success. He had so played this out over the last 40 days in his own mind of how this was going to go, that he wasn't ready for what happened next. And this is what happened next. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it's not by the sword, it's not by the spear that the Lord saves for the battle for the battle is the Lord's. Can I get an amen for that? For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. And the Philistine moved closer to attack him and David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him and reaching into his bag, he taking out a stone, he slung it and he struck the Philistine on the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. Now, you can see from the text, David was confident as well. But his confidence is not derived from the same place that Goliath's confidence is derived from. 
Goliath blocks out any fear by focusing on his own resources, his size, his sword, his spear, his javelin, his training, his state-of-the-art weaponry. David deals with his fears by focusing on God's resources. He says, all those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves. Goliath visualizes his own success. David visualizes God's success. This is the day that the Lord will hand you over to me. Goliath can't even imagine, imagine his own defeat. David can't imagine God's defeat. He says, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Goliath says, I can do this. David says, God can do this. Goliath doesn't doubt himself. David doesn't, doesn't doubt God. Goliath thinks that what he's doing has no risks. David knows what he's doing has risks, but he sees it as obedient risk. Courage is not about being fearless. That's where we so often misunderstand courage. Goliath was fearless. Goliath had no fear. Courage is not about being fearless. Courage is about doing the right thing in spite of your fears. Courage is about obedient risk. It's about saying yes to God even when the pathway to success is not particularly clear or it's a little unorthodox, like it was with David. Now, the question is, and this is always the question we read these stories, particularly in the Old Testament, and it's especially true with this story because it's such a familiar story and all of us have probably heard it at some level. The question is, like, where are you in the story? Like, where are you? Where do you place yourself in the story. And of course, for most of us, like we want to be David. Like that's who we want to be in the story. We want to be the champion that slays the giant. We want to be the champion that slays Goliath. We want to be the hero of the story. We want to be the one who vanquishes all of our fears and takes down all of the giants in our life. But the reality is that we're not David. The reality is we're the Israelites. <laughs> That's who we are in the story. We're the frightened, fearful people who are terrified of the giants in our life. We're the ones who need a champion to fight on our behalf, need someone to take down the giant. We need someone to take down Goliath. We need the champion's battle to be our battle. We need the champion's victory to be our victory. And David was, of course, pointing to another champion. He was pointing to Jesus. David saved the Israelites at the risk of his life. Jesus saved us at the cost of his life. Through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus won the ultimate battle over sin and over death, which means that whatever it is that you are facing, it is temporary. 
Whatever fearful situation that you are in, it will not last. It will not abide. Psalms 30 says, says this, weeping may last or may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. It's one of my favorite Psalms. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. So let me just ask you, like, what is your greatest fear? What's your greatest fear? What's your greatest fear right now? Because sometimes it changes depending upon the season of our life. Is it the loss of a relationship? Is that your greatest fear? The loss of a relationship that you thought was going to go in a certain direction is going in a different direction? Is that your greatest fear? Is it the loss of wealth? Is it the loss of a loved one? Is it the loss of your health? Is it the loss of your life? Like, what's your greatest fear? And here's the thing I just want us to understand, that Jesus' death and his resurrection doesn't mean that you are immune to any of those fears. It doesn't mean that there won't be loss of relationship in your life. It doesn't mean that there won't be loss of health in your life. It doesn't mean that there won't be the loss of a loved one in your life. It doesn't mean that there could not be the loss of possessions in your life. It doesn't make you immune to any of those losses. It just means that those losses can no longer rob you of your joy. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He says, true courage is not the absence of fear. It is the presence of joy. True courage is not the absence of fear. It is the presence of joy. Jesus knew fear. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was crying out, Father, let this cup pass from me, he was afraid. He knew what he was about to face. He knew what that was like. He knew how awful, how terrible, how unbearable, how painful what he was about to experience would be. And yet, it could not rob him, even in that moment, it could not rob him of his joy. I love the passage in Hebrews 12 that says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Implying that there was a joy that was so captivating, so overwhelming, so compelling that he was willing to go through the pain and the suffering of the cross so that he might experience the joy. 
Which then begs the question, what was the joy set before him? What was such an incredible joy that it gave Jesus the courage to overcome the fear and endure the unspeakable pain of the cross? And the answer is, it was you. (laughs) It was you. And it was me. You were the joy set before him. I was the joy set before him. Being in relationship with you. Spending eternity with you. Walking through all the stuff that you're dealing with. With with you. Loving you. Spending time with you. Being with you. Spending eternity with you. Being present with you. Now, you, you, you are the joy that was set before him. And that's why weeping only remains for a night. That's why nothing, 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 nothing can take away your joy. That's why joy is is always, is always on the way. No matter what you are going through, no matter what loss it represents, no matter what fear it represents, joy is always on the way. And the question is, do you know that joy? Because you can. That's what a relationship with Jesus is all about, is knowing that kind of abiding joy that is not limited by the circumstances, painful though they may be, of life. That's the joy. We were the joy that was set before him. And that's the joy that is set before us. God, we are so thankful for what you have done for us on the cross, for your glorious resurrection. We are so thankful, Lord, that we were the joy that was set before you that gave you the courage to overcome your fears and to take on such a painful reality to be in relationship with us, to love us, to be with us, to walk with us, to guide us, to direct us. And Lord, we are thankful that no matter what happens in our lives, that we can know that joy. That the sorrow, the wounding, the pain lasts only for the night. 
the morning brings new and fresh joy. Lord, I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice can know that joy. And that for anyone who is here today in these blue seats, anyone who is with us online, Lord, I pray that does not know that joy, that does not know the joy that comes from being in relationship with you, that today would be the day that they would simply say yes to what you have done for them on the cross and in rising from the grave. Lord, that your victory would be their victory, that your battle would be their battle. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.